The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Let me take you uh, to Colossians chapter 3. Let's open there together as we continue in our series in the book of Colossians. Now in Colossians 3, we're going to be concluding chapter 3 and getting into verse uh, 1 of chapter 4 and really moving to the conclusion of the book of Colossians. We've been here since early on in the month of January this year, uh, but we're nearing a close because the following chapter, the the last chapter 4, is uh, really going to be fairly brief together, uh, but we're not quite to that point. We're getting to the last of Paul's very practical instructions. So, if you haven't already, open with me to Colossians 3 as Paul continues to address some of the practical implications for Christian living in the world as Paul writes to this church in Colossae, a small town in somewhat of an, uh, you know, out-of-the-way place, but where a small church was learning to follow Jesus with sincerity, and Paul has been writing to them to explain how the Lordship of Jesus transforms all of life for the Christian believer in every sphere of their life. Christ is Lord. Christ is preeminent, to draw out the word from the book of Colossians and also our sermon series. And today we're going to further expand that reality of the Lordship of Christ over all things, preeminent over all things, and get into another order of uh, social relationships uh, as we did last week. Now, just a word uh, before we uh, pray and read the text that this is uh, another one of these passages that incites a lot of concern from modern readers. So we need to address it with uh, a fitting amount of concern, an appropriate amount of proper context, but also to approach it as God's word like we would any other portion of scripture. So in order to do that, we of course need God's help. So let's pray together and ask God's blessing upon the scriptures as we hear them together. Gracious God, we pause now and And bow before you to say that you've given us your word for the purpose of instruction. That we might grow in godliness, grow in faithfulness in our pursuit of following Jesus. Not just in one area of life or another, but in all of life. So we pray, Lord, that by your spirit that so moved the Apostle Paul to record these words without error to the church at Colossae. That your same spirit might take those words and apply them to this church here in Edgington that we might be your faithful people, led by your Spirit, under the reign of Jesus Christ, and loving you, our Heavenly Father. So, Lord, bless your word to us, we ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear God's word. We're in Colossians 3 at verse 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. Hear now the word of God. Bondservants, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. For you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer, will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of God abides forever. So may he write truth in our hearts today. We're going to be here in Colossians. We're also going to end up in the book of Philemon. 
uh, and it's right before the book of Hebrews. So if you want to stick something in your Bible in the book of Philemon, it's just one chapter, so you can get there quickly at the end. But we're in Colossians 3. Now, uh, the, the pulpit has often been referred to in the Reformed tradition as the sacred desk. The sacred desk, uh, because it's where the minister goes to work, as it were, uh, at the task of proclaiming the word of God to the people of God. So, friends, uh, we're going to get to work in this passage and somewhat quickly. You will notice in verse 22 that in the ESV text, at the end of the very first word, bond servants, you've got a footnote. The footnotes are there as an apparatus in your New Testament to help you make your way through various translation decisions that are made by translation committees to help you and I, modern readers of the text, understand what was originally given by divine inspiration when Paul first put quill to paper to record the word of God. What you find then in verse 22 is this word bondservant. It is the Greek word doulos, which most literally translates to slave. Slave. So, if you were to look at that footnote at verse 22 behind the word bondservant, you would find a direction to pursue from the, the, the pretextual apparatus, the preface, translation notes to help you understand what this word means and how it relates to the original context of the first century. I'm going to give you the cliff notes of this so that we can clear the way of what are oftentimes many obstacles that are present to approach this text in a meaningful way. So, let's get right to the point. The word doulos, translated here bondservant, refers to an ancient practice and institution that does not immediately correspond to a modern-day understanding. So this word does not immediately correspond directly to a modern understanding of slavery. The word covers a range of meaning and relationships reflected in a range of English words that are often given bondservant or servant or slave. Those three words, bondservant, servant, and slave, are all three translated from the same Greek word doulos depending on the context. And because the word slave has for our American understanding carries such connotations of the brutal and dehumanizing institution of American chattel slavery, we have an obstacle for how to understand this word. Because we read the word slave and we can't help but think of those things. So, care is needed to bridge these cultural gaps and understand what Paul is talking about. So let me give you briefly some context from the Old Testament and New Testament so that we arrive at this text with some historical biblical context. Slavery or bond service or servitude in the Old Testament, you might enter into voluntarily. Someone might willingly and voluntarily become a slave or a bond servant in order to escape poverty or more likely to pay off a debt. You owe a debt to someone else that you can't pay, so you willingly enter into their service to pay off your debt. I don't know if people still do this. You can't pay for your meal, so you wash the dishes in the restaurant. Same type of mentality there. 
So you might enter voluntarily, or you might perhaps enter the institution involuntarily by birth. You were born into a servitude family, or perhaps you were captured in battle and placed in the servitude of the championing nation, or you were perhaps placed into bond service by judicial sentence. You robbed from someone to provide restitution, you're going to be placed in their service, not put in incarceration. So there is a voluntary service, there is an involuntary service. People oftentimes place themselves for the purposes of protection for themselves and for their households. And as servants, bond servants and slaves in the Old Testament, you were given rights as slaves within a household and given protection under the Mosaic law because you were thought to be a member of that household even if you were not of direct biological lineage to that family. You were a part of their family and such given to the protection of the household as a result. That is bond service, slavery, or servitude in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, that word doulos or bond servant was oftentimes in the first century someone bound to serve a particular house for a definite set of time who would still perhaps own their own property, be able to achieve social advance, and eventually be released and achieve their own freedom. Some historians estimate that at one point the population of Rome constituted some 80 to 90% of slaves or former slaves, such that it was a normative social reality to be in some form of servitude or service to one person or the next, or perhaps the imperial nation itself. Slavery in the context of the first century was not race-based. And just like in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, the word has a range of meaning. The range of meaning can be seen in many different things. It could be understood to be a slave as to be the object of absolute ownership. That's the way Paul uses the word in Romans 6 when he says, As sinners, we are slaves to sin. We are owned by sin. We are in the service of of sin with sin as our master, absolute ownership. Or the word is also used in terms of bond service where there is a limited form of service, like in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 21 to 24, where a person can serve for a time but then eventually gain their freedom. Such to say that not all bond service was perpetual. You could come out of bond service. Or there was an understanding where someone could be a servant in the house, uh, not an object of ownership, but rather a member of the house, household member like in John 4:51, where a Roman official has servants in his house who are members of his household. Now, all of that to say, all of that to say, the word doulos in the New Testament, bondservant, slave, and servant, is not the ancient institution of 19th century American chateau slavery. So... But what is very interesting here, as Paul is bringing the letter of Colossians to a close, is that it would make sense that he would address Christian households, husbands and wives and children to their parents. But the fact that he addresses slaves and their masters, bond servants and their masters, is very interesting because when Paul writes the letter of Colossians, he is writing it to the church that is meeting in the house of a man named Philemon. And Philemon is someone who has been defrauded by a runaway servant who ran away from his house and in the process of running away, stole from Philemon. We don't know how much. 
All we know is that Philemon has been defrauded by his runaway servant Onesimus, and Onesimus is now coming back to this same house church along with his friend Tychicus. Tychicus is carrying the letter, and he has Onesimus at his right side. So the runaway slave Onesimus has now become a Christian. He's come back to the house that he did just run away from, but now as a Christian believer. And Paul writes Colossians here and an accompanying letter, Philemon, that we'll look at in just a second. And he has this context to say, Jesus Christ transforms the social order of relationships one to another. Jesus Christ transforms the way we relate to each other as husbands and wives and children to parents, parents to children, and even slaves to masters, masters to slaves and bond servants. So the context here at the end of chapter 3 greatly helps our understanding of the first century practice, but still there's more that we need to clear the way of before we get into the details of the text. And the reason why is because I would venture to guess that you may perhaps have in the past had certain objections or encountered people still today or who have certain objections who say, Paul endorses the exploitation of people. Paul endorses slavery. Paul is pro-slavery. And they say things like, because Paul endorses the exploitation of people and because he maintains the evil of this relic of culture, what people end up doing is they dismiss the entirety of the New Testament because of specific passages like this one. They think nothing in the New Testament is relevant to them because of just one thing that Paul would say. So, in order to deal with that, we have to engage the objection. We have to engage the reality because there is no reason to dismiss the New Testament because of what Paul says here. So let's engage it by saying several things. First of all, it is not the Apostle Paul's mission to transform social culture. It is not the Apostle Paul's mission to transform social culture. It's instead his mission to demonstrate how Jesus Christ redeems every earthly institution, even that of slaves to masters. Paul knows that real change doesn't occur by structure and social fabric or programs, but instead change happens from the inside out as Christ reigns over individuals and then from the inside out transforms them and they by their transformed life live as salt and light in the midst of a world that will be transformed through their sincerity. That's the way change is affected. In other words, Paul leads with Jesus is Lord of your life, now go live your life in the midst of a world and make a difference. So the truth, then, that Jesus is Lord affects everything, even the institution of slavery. So no, Paul does not condemn the first century institution of slavery, but everything that he teaches transforms it. Notice how, in just a few ways, we'll do these quickly. First of all, he says both to slaves and to masters, Christ is Lord over you and over your work over the management of those who are under you, and he is also over the management of those who manage you. This was a radical assertion to say to a slave, you have a master beyond your earthly master. Paul is instructing Christian slaves that they have a heavenly master, and that heavenly master gives them dignity, worth, and rights. 
if their earthly master did not give them earthly dignity and rights, Jesus does. Secondly, he also treats slaves as people rather than property. Just the very fact that Paul writes to slaves and addresses them gives them inherent dignity and value as a part of the church of Jesus Christ. He writes to them, recognizes them, and provides encouragement to them. That means he's not turning from them, but rather turning to them and honoring them as Christian slaves, real image bearers of God. And then he also teaches a principle of reciprocity. He expects masters to be concerned with their servants, and he expects servants to be concerned with their employer, a reciprocal concern. So these principles upended the first century notion of bond service and helped the Christian church be seen as a real change agent in the culture. In fact, one first century historian said that Christians were the enemies of culture because their way of life was so different from what secular culture taught. And secular culture said, you're not a human being, you don't have inherent dignity, value, and worth, you're just owned. But the Christian church said, no, even those who are seen in the eyes of the world of the lowest rung of social class have dignity, value, and worth made in the image of God and ruled by Jesus, their heavenly master. So, Paul does not, if you like, totally upend the social fabric, but he does demonstrate how the gospel transforms the very reality of this institution. But, so you should be asking yourself, okay, but here I am in the 21st century. Like, so what, right? Imagine some of you have already said that so far. What's the point of this text for the 21st century where I would venture to guess with a great amount of confidence that you don't have a bondservant in your home. That you don't have a slave in your household. So the qualifier statement here is that these applications are not immediate one-to-one correlations, but they are definitely applications of necessary consequence as we take this text into the 21st century and ask the question, How do Paul's words of the relationships of masters to their servants and servants to their masters transform the way that I should think about my vocation as a Christian believer? How should Paul's words transform the way I think about my vocation, our working relationships, the way we relate to our bosses, or the way we relate to our employees? Now, whether you find yourself employed or retired, or you are at home and very much working, all of this still applies to you now. So what is it that Paul is saying to bring the Lordship of Jesus into our working relationships and allow us to be transformed by the gospel as he reigns over us? What should we say? Several things. First of all, as a Christian who works, whether you work for financial gain or you work in the home or you work at your retirement, whatever the case might be, as a Christian believer, you should see all of your work as ultimately being done for the Lord. Look at it again in verse 23. Paul says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Notice, notice how broadly applicable that is. 
whatever you do, okay? So don't try to excuse yourself by saying, well, this doesn't apply to me because I do something that is not included in a certain list. No, no, no. Paul says, whatever you do, okay? That just swallowed every single one of us up. Whatever we do, we should work heartily, as for the Lord, and not for men. Work heartily can be literally translated as work from your soul. Paul is saying here that Jesus Christ has set you free. He set you free from sin and brought you into his spiritual kingdom. And he has brought you into Christian liberty. And because you have been set free in Jesus Christ, you have motivation to work. You have more motivation to work than your unbelieving neighbor and friend, actually. Because the lordship of Jesus Christ does not weaken your motivation to work. It strengthens it. So what Paul is saying here is you could potentially imagine bond servants saying, oh, uh, 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 I, I'm in Christ, so I don't have to obey my master. And Paul is saying, no, you do still engage in these social contracts and relationships in such a way that you have obligations to your earthly masters. You still have to work. You still have to do your job. You still have to honor your employer. Just because you follow Jesus doesn't mean you get a pass on these social conventions. Or another way of saying it is, well, I'm a Christian, so I should just be allowed to study my Bible all day at church instead of be productive or all day at work instead of being productive at my task. No, you'd be a bad employee if you did that. You understand? Instead of doing your job that you're paid to do, you could just sit around and study your Bible at your job. No, of course not. Paul would say, when you go to work, you should work. And you should work for Jesus' sake. You should obey your earthly master. You should obey your employer for Jesus' sake. As a bondservant who is in Christ, you should obey, in verse 22, notice he says, not just by way of this very particular phrase, eye service. Now you know what that means. There's a tendency for some people who when they go to work to try to get by with the absolute minimum possible, right? I'm going to only do what I have to do so that when the boss sees me, I look productive, but as soon as the eyes turn away, my hands are gonna drop, right? That's what Paul is talking about here. Not just by way of eye service. There's this tendency to think that people who undervalue us and underappreciate our efforts, that as soon as they turn away, we stop doing because they don't really care anyway. Paul says that's not the Christian way. That's not the way of the Christian employee. The way of the Christian employee is not to give the least amount of effort or the minimal amount of effort, but to do your job for Jesus' sake. Why? Because you have a master who never turns his eye from you. A master in heaven, and you ultimately work for him. Now, what this is getting at is a very important principle that especially came out of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, this notion of Christian vocation. For the first 1,500 years of church history, this notion of, of vocation was not a reality for everyday Christian believers. What used to happen is actually what still happens today, where we have this tendency to divide up work by saying there's spiritual work, right? Missionaries and pastors and Christian teachers in Christian institutions and elders, Sunday school teachers. Those people are doing spiritual work. And me, when I go to my job, when I'm doing my labor or I'm in agriculture or I'm working on the line or I'm doing my accounting or I'm doing my business work, that's just ordinary labor, right? There's spiritual work, but then there's just a job. What Paul is addressing here is the reality that the Christian understands that there is no such distinction between 
sacred and secular callings. The word vocation means, it comes from the, uh, the Latin verb vocare, which means to call. That means that your job is a calling from God. You might not be in ordained church service, but your job is just as much service to the Lord as the pastor. Your job at your workplace or on your farm has as much inherent dignity, value, and worth as so-called spiritual work because your job is just as spiritual because you do it for the Lord. That's the notion of vocation. Whatever you do, you are to do it for the glory of God. So you undertake your labors for the glory of God. You teach school for the glory of God. You farm for the glory of God. You undertake your vocation for the glory of God. And in this way, the entirety of your outlook is transformed. Because you're doing it for Jesus, ultimately. And that transforms everything. So Paul says, first of all, all of our work is done for the Lord. And then secondly, for the principle of the Christian engaged in this, Christians should do all of their work from their heart. Again, verse 22, with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, sincerity of heart. So we work for the Lord, and as we work for the Lord, we engage our hearts. Now, everybody knows what it's like to, to try to receive service or help from somebody who's not really in it, right? You, you go to them, and they act like you're bothering them when you ask them to do their job. And that annoys you, doesn't it? Of course it does. They're in a service role, but they act annoyed if you ask them to do their job. Well, Paul is addressing that very thing here. This notion of half hearted engagement with our labor. The Christian does not work that way. The Christian believer works from the heart. In other words, giving our heart to our work no matter what we do, finding the worth because we're doing it from the Lord and giving ourselves to it, right? Everybody knows that it's, quite frankly, really discouraging when you talk to people who hate their jobs. Isn't that terrible? They're just miserable. And you might be saying to yourself, well, that's me. Well, did you listen to the first point, right? If you hate your job, you should reconsider who you are ultimately working for. Maybe you need to change your job and work for the Lord in a different capacity. But when you encounter people who hate their work, they see it as such a drudgery, it's because they're not giving their heart to it. For one reason or another. But what Paul is saying here, this makes a difference to know that there's dignity and value in our labor to such a degree that we can find joy in our work and give our hearts to it. Such to say, Christian employees should be exemplary employees. That's a very practical reality, isn't it? But it's just a fact. Christian employees should be exemplary employees because we're working ultimately for the Lord. Now this goes beyond, of course, uh, workplace environments and has applications for everyday work, especially the kind of work that we do for ourselves. And everybody, one of us, needs a lesson about this, right? You could be guilty of doing, you know, just good enough, right? It's good enough, right? Good enough for who it's for type of thing, especially when you're working on your own projects. I think, I think Christ calls us to a bit more than that in, in serving ultimately for the Lord and, and doing more and trying harder and giving more of our hearts to our efforts. And my favorite illustration of this was always the Puritan craftsmen of the American colonies. And the craftsmen of the American colonies, the Puritan uh, faithful Christian folks especially, were well known for in their craftsmanship, they would take pieces of furniture, especially well known was chairs and tables, 
And if you were to look at a piece of work by a Puritan craftsman and turn the chair over or turn the table over, the underside of the table or chair would be finished, sanded and finished, the same way the top was. And you might say, why? Nobody sees the bottom of the chair. You sit on the top. Nobody sees the bottom of the table. You work at the top. And they would say, God sees. God sees of giving my heart and giving my labors to this vocation, this service, and I'm giving more of myself to it because the Lord deserves it from me. I give my heart to it. I engage myself in it. Not half-heartedly, not lackadaisical, but because God sees, God cares, and God knows. We work for the Lord, first of all. We give our hearts to it, second of all. And the third principle that comes out of this, to be sure, is that the Christian should realize that their work will be rewarded. We're looking again at verse 24 there. As Paul is speaking to slaves in the first century when he says, you will receive an inheritance as your reward. Now, again, you should appreciate the social convention that this upends because oftentimes bond servants, slaves, servants in the home would receive what they need for their daily care, but they were not oftentimes paid for their labors because they were there to pay off a debt that they owe. But here is Paul telling them that they have a reward. That they have an inheritance that is theirs in Jesus Christ because they serve the Lord. Yes, it is a deferred reward because that's what an inheritance is, isn't it? It's something that's yours that you don't possess yet. It's got your name on it and it's secured for you that you'll have one day. And Paul says to the bondservants, you have an inheritance, a reward that motivates your service. Sometimes in our earthly circumstances, we can feel that our employment is underpaid, undervalued, or perhaps defrauded even by our employer. But for the Christian believer, you should be motivated by the fact that you will receive a reward from God. What is that reward? Well, besides the benefit of a clean conscience, it's the confidence in a faithful service. The confidence that you were obedient to serve the Lord as your ultimate master, that you gave your heart to it, that you will receive a reward, an inheritance for your faithful service. Likewise, it's a word to the one who is an employer who underpays, undervalues, and defrauds, that they will also be paid back a reward, but theirs is not a lovely one. Do you notice how Paul says in verse 25 that he leaves this kind of intentionally ambiguous, doesn't he? Verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. He's saying, uh, you who serve, you will be paid back with an inheritance, and the one who defrauds will be paid back with justice or judgment. It's a motivation that your work will be rewarded, so we must work righteously. So we work to the Lord, we work with our heart, we work with the notion that there is an inheritance, a reward from God Himself, and a final principle that I think we should draw from this is that uh, one surely speaking to the Christian employer, chapter 4, verse 1, as Paul says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So in a community and in a first century where masters only had minimal obligations to their servants, here is Paul saying, master or employer, you are a person under obligation yourself. You don't just have people under your obligation. You yourself are under Jesus' reign. You yourself has a master. And so, he says, be just and fair. Be just and fair. Such to say that 
Christian employees should be the best employees and Christian employers should motivate their employees by having the best type of opportunities for them, the most rewarding opportunities for them, the most fair and just opportunities for them. In other words, he is saying to those who place people in their employment, your employees aren't your property. They're not disposable to you. They're made in the image of God. They bear God's image. And you will give an account for how you treat them because you yourself have a master. So lest we be tempted to think to ourselves, okay, this slave and bondservant language and master talk, it might relate, correlate to, to, to employers and employees, but I'm not quite convinced. What we most of all need to be convinced of is this reality. That because Jesus Christ has died and risen and ascended and reigns, his reigning is intended to inform and control and rule over all aspects of your life. Nothing is kept back from his lordship, including the way you view other people, especially in your working relationships. And so to give a concluding word, come with me into the book of Philemon. Turn right into Philemon. Uh, go past First and Second Timothy and Titus and come into the tiny book of Philemon. It just has one chapter. It's very brief. Again, Philemon is the one who is hosting the church of Colossae in his home. Philemon is the one who had a runaway bondservant named Onesimus steal from him and run away. And Paul met Onesimus. Paul preached the gospel to Onesimus. The same gospel that Philemon has come to believe is the gospel that Onesimus has come to believe and Paul sends Onesimus, the runaway slave who stole from his master, back to the church that's meeting in his master's house. Which you can imagine was very socially awkward at first. And Paul wrote the words at the end of Colossians, I believe, with Philemon and Onesimus in mind. But he also writes this companion letter of Philemon directly to Philemon to address him on these various parts. So look at Philemon at verse 8 and listen to what it says. Paul writes, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Paul is saying, I've become his spiritual father. He's come to Christ through the ministry of the gospel that I've offered to him. He's become a Christian believer is what he's saying. Verse 11, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Verse 12, I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. Look at verse 16. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul says, Philemon, you own Onesimus in one sense. He stole from you. He wronged you. 
and he ran away from you. But now, Philemon, take him back. Take him back, not with penalty. Take him back, not with wounds and lashes. But take him back in love, because the man who was once your bondservant is now your brother in Christ. Because, Paul says, who we are in Christ is the most important thing about us. It doesn't upend every social relationship. It brings every social relationship under the lordship of Jesus. So Paul says to Philemon, take Onesimus back. He's your brother in Christ. No longer as a bondservant, but your brother. Because Christ is your Lord, Onesimus. Christ is your Lord, Philemon. And loved one, Christ is your Lord when you go to work. Christ is your Lord in your retirement. Christ is your Lord in your home. And as a result, you live for him. That's what Paul is saying. May he give us grace to live it out. Let's pray. Great God, we thank you that your word touches upon such practical realities such as these. We pray that we would receive this word and have it planted deeply into our hearts, that it might bear fruit to the glory of your name, such that we would be able to faithfully say in all circumstances that it is indeed well with our soul because we follow our master, Jesus Christ. So Lord, bless your people as we seek to live this out in sincerity, we ask. In the name of Christ, our Lord, who reigns from heaven. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit EdgingtonEPC.org. May God bless and keep you.